This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Oro Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu and Silver Lake, and somewhere in Western Los Angeles. Oro was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his good friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their plan was to create a place that treated addiction and alcoholism with compassion and connection rather than control. They have decades and decades and decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI. They make sure your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is so important. And they have amenities you wouldn't believe. Sound bath meditation, equine therapy, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. It's all there. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get treatment, I've only heard amazing things about Oro. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Soberlink. As we all know, addiction is a serious issue that needs to be addressed, and nearly 15 million people in the United States have an alcohol use disorder. That is alcohol only, not other drugs. Only 10% of those people get treatment, and this can be attributed to the stigma that surrounds addiction and how people don't want to talk about it. Soberlink supports the no-judgment zone that is dopey and strives to erase the stigma of alcohol addiction. Their remote alcohol monitoring tool has helped over 500,000 people to be more accountable in their sobriety. The Dopey podcast was started with open and honest conversations about addiction and recovery, and Soberlink encourages this to help rebuild trust and maintain sobriety. We've teamed up with Soberlink to create a healthy habits guide for those in recovery. Visit www.soberlink.com dopey to download that guide, and if you or someone you know can benefit from accountability for alcohol recovery, you'll also find a form on that page to sign up for 50 buck off promo code exclusive to Dopey Nation. So let Soberlink help you stay off of the sauce and go to soberlink.com dopey. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Sober Buddy. I want to tell you guys all about Sober Buddy because it's so available to you if you need some help getting or staying sober. It's, of course, the little blue fluffy guy you may have seen in sober memes on Instagram or Facebook. I love the Sober Buddy app because it not only gives you challenges that help you get sober, it helps you think differently about your life. It has a sober tracker down to the second daily check-ins that give you advice based on your mood, cute motivational memes, and helpful tips too. Over 60,000 people have already used Sober Buddy to help them get sober, and they have been featured in over 70 news stories. The Sober Buddy app is available in both the iTunes and Google Play stores, or you can check out their website at YourSoberBuddy.com. Check them out. So hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave and very excited. We've got a very thrilling, super fucking dopey episode for you guys. So hope you guys are well. Hope you guys are relaxed and comfortable. There's lots of news. So I'm going to give you the news. First of all, we need to congratulate the great Scott Wick 
for two years in recovery. How's that? And I, I think he 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 credits Dopey and Dopey Zoom to his the beginning of his two years, and then the rest of it we can give to him and twelve step or whatever. But congratulations, Scott, a shining example, and of course a big fucking congratulations to the great Katie B, deadhead from California, who diligently and incredibly reliably and very friendly like helps me with the dopey Patreon Zoom at the last Saturday every month. She sets up the game. And uh, I love Katie. I love Scott. Congratulations to both of them. And uh, I'm just happy that you guys are in our community. And our community is thriving and strong. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. And if you guys don't know about Dopey Zoom, you should go to Dopey Zoom. Uh, They did a marathon at the end of the month. We had a super cool... Uh, I did part of it. We did a little free dopey Patreon zoom. If you're a Patreon member, please come to the dopey Patreon zoom. If you're not, you should join the Patreon cause that's showing support for the dopey. But let's say you want to just go to the dopey zoom. You should go to that because they do over 25 meetings a week. It's a amazing Oh, it's a amazing, it's an amazing community of support. It's a bunch of addicts and alcoholics who get together and sometimes they do AA and sometimes they do NA and sometimes they do Dharma, smart recovery. They do talent shows. They do cooking. They hang out. It is an amazing free uh, support network. So please check out Dopey Zoom and subscribe to Dopey YouTube. Throw me a fucking bone. It's free. Just subscribe to that shit. And and uh, before I get really down the rabbit hole of uh, self-promotion, um, I did something that I'm not proud of, and I need to make an amend. And if you guys are dopey patrons and you watch the videos, maybe you watched a video I did with Aurora. We were talking about uh, the TV show Euphoria. And I had gone to get my beard trimmed because my beard was overgrown and I was looking like some sort of Hasidic uh, homeless person. I had gone past the Hasidic sea captain to total homeless Hasid. So I went to get my hair cut and I went to our local barber shop, which is called Iron and Tread. And because I'm an asshole, I talked shit about them in the video. I said some things that weren't true. I called them because there's some there, you know, it's run by some very handsome, burly, bearded, tattooed barbers and me feeling insecure. I called them neo-Nazis, which I never should have done, especially because they're like a super fucking like woke style barbershop. So as usual, it started with me talking shit about them having wallets on chains and being bearded with face tattoos and ended up with me calling them neo-Nazis and making fun of the young man who uh, gave me a beard trim. And, you know, me not really thinking about it, me thinking that nobody listens. I just kind of forgot about it. And then I guess we put the dopey Patreon video on YouTube. And just so we're clear, like, I don't know, about 17,000 people, give or take, listen to the show in the first month. Nobody watches YouTube. I think 186 people had watched the YouTube video, and I heard from the barbershop. 
and I heard from the barber. Um, the barber shop just said, hey, man, caught your podcast when you mentioned my shop. I get comedy and whatnot and like your podcast. He likes the podcast, but calling us neo-Nazis kind of fucked, man, especially since we pride ourselves in the exact opposite and protested and fought on the other side of the fence the last few years. There's a big sign when you walk in saying we don't tolerate any racism or bigotry. I've listened to you before. I like you and what you do, but that's a little harsh. And the last thing I want is anyone listening to you thinking that in any way. So I apologized, and his name is Jarrett, and he accepted my apology. Now, the barber wrote me, and his name was Bailey, and he was super cool. And I, like, in the Patreon video, I called him a skinny, nerdy guy, which, like, who am I? I'm, like, the biggest nerd. Who am I to call anybody a skinny, nerdy guy and, and be anything besides, I don't know, ob observant, observatory? I don't know even what the word is. I'm so embarrassed that uh, he heard this. And I'm going to read what he wrote because I think it's very important. He says, Bailey here, first off to say we're a bunch of neo-Nazis is a complete false judgment. If you looked around the shop, you'd see gay pride flags and signs that say hate has no home here, etc. We pride ourselves on being very inclusive. The shop owner even helped organize the Black Lives Matter protest in Sava last June. And that's not how that interaction went down at the barbershop at all. You came in saying, my barber's going to kill me, man, saying it over and over again. And I was like, do you want a fucking haircut or not? I get it. You're trying to make content for your podcast. Portraying me all nerdy and skinny is fine or whatever. But the whole neo-Nazi thing, for that, you can suck my fucking ass. Trying to be all buddy-buddy, asking to put stickers up and everything. Go fuck yourself. And this is a harsh truth. I was being all buddy-buddy with Bailey, and he was cool and sweet, and it was a good shave. And I went there before during COVID, and I got a good haircut at Iron and Tread. So first of all, this is a formal amend. I, I, I spoke to Jared. He accepted my apology. Bailey never wrote me back, which is fine. I was a dick. That's what I deserve. If you're ever in Sayville or Suffolk County, get your haircut at Iron and Tread. They are righteous people. They give good haircuts. I'm a dick. It is a great lesson for me because I'm trying to be funny and I'm trying, I'm trying to get people to like me by making somebody else look bad. And that's just straight up character defect, horrible shit. And I'm going to try my best to not do shit like that. So that is my amend to Iron and Tread, my amend to Jarrett and Bailey. And uh, that's that. I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to send them something. But I wonder if they would want it. I don't know. Dopey Nation, please write emails to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, tell us what you think. Send in a story. Uh, be part of the community. I'm incredibly ashamed at this iron and tread incident. But I'm going to do my best to do better. We get to uh, do better. We get to make amends and, and do better. So this is... is me coming clean and trying to give them a nice mention. There's been so much shit happening. You know, obviously, fucking Will Smith smacked Chris Rock. Taylor Hawkins died. Taylor Hawkins dying. Like, I was never a big Foo Fighters fan. But um, Taylor Hawkins' death, you know, it kind of affected me around the periphery. I heard from a, a really, really old school dopey listener who was like it reminded her 
you know, that Dave Grohl had to go through this and I had to go through this when you or anybody who uh, has a collaborator or a partner or a really close friend or a loved one who uh, who dies and poor Dave Grohl had this happen to him twice. And I don't know. I don't think he I don't know that Taylor Hawkins overdosed. I don't have a toxicology report, nor could I read one. I do know that Taylor was in a coma for heroin in 2000. I do know they found a bunch of drugs in Taylor Hawkins' system. I do know that it would be hard to imagine a better looking life than the life that Taylor Hawkins had. Uh, Seemingly the nicest person around, ridiculously talented, uh, seemingly happy. Not that I know him at all, but... It just like, and, and I, you know, I don't want anyone to do anything they don't want to do, but it seems like this is a great reason to be abstinent, um, just so that you can live longer and be a friend and be a parent and be a drummer and be whoever you want to be. So rest in peace, Taylor Hawkins. Um, someone said they saw Dave Grohl wearing a dopey hat. I want confirmation. Has anyone seen Dave Grohl wearing a dopey hat? Our, our prayers and our love goes to Taylor Hawkins' family, the Foo Fighter community, and um, everybody, anybody that lost anybody. But, but Taylor Hawkins is a big deal. DopeyCon 3 is coming up at the, at the Dopey Free Patreon Zoom. We kind of decided it's going to be at the end of September, like DopeyCon 1. Location has not been determined. We're thinking the last Saturday of September in 2022. If you are a Dopey fan, please come. There will be an amazing lineup, but even more so than the first one, it's going to be you guys coming. That's going to be the most special thing. So DopeyCon 3 is in the works. I'm ridiculously excited. I think I said to support us on Patreon. Uh, there's so much good shit on Patreon. There will be more. Somebody mentioned on Dopey Reddit, shout out to Cormac, the originator of Dopey Reddit and the originator of Dopey SoundCloud and the sound guy at DopeyCon and a good friend and supporter of all things Dopey. They said on, on Dopey Reddit that they want more Dopey stories on Dopey Patreon. So look to Dopey Patreon for more Dopey stories. And I also found out that my cholesterol is really high. It turns out I don't have diabetes or pre-diabetes, but I have high cholesterol. So the Ben and Jerry's fucking, the tasting is, is kind of going to be put on hold for a little bit. I tried some non-dairy Ben and Jerry's. It was not up to snuff. wasn't bad. I think I could get acclimated but it was not up to snuff. So look for a new dopey fitness challenge on the horizon. Look for healthy, healthy habits on the horizon. And um, what else? Go to the dopey store, buy the dopey merch. We are in a partnership with an amazing company called SRO Prints. If you need printing done, contact SROprints.com. There's some new shit coming out. The King Baby Dopey is like the coolest fucking Dopey merch ever. Go to DopeyPodcast.com. I still have a ton of socks. I have beanies. I have Dopey snapbacks, Oyve snapbacks. Check that shit out. We have beautiful candles right now. We're in a collaboration with the North Ave Candle Company. Beautiful fucking candles. Go to NorthAveCandles.com slash collections. 
slash dopey. Buy some candles. They smell amazing. They're really, I mean, I, I wouldn't say they're high quality if there weren't. They're very high quality. Because Howie pesters me, I'm going to tell you again. Go to Dopey YouTube. No, I mean, like, there's so many of you and nobody goes to Dopey YouTube. So subscribe to Dopey YouTube. Watch a video. If it sucks, put it in the comments. If you like it, put it in the comments. Give me suggestions. Today's show is too good. It's a ridiculously good show today. We have Jeremy Jackson, who's like, his dopey shit is off the charts. Um, He was on Baywatch. He played the kid, Hobie Buchanan, on Baywatch. And then he went through the dopey ride of the century. And he was awesome. So be prepared for the epic dopiness that is Jeremy Jackson. But before we get to Jeremy, I want to remind you guys that the Dopey Podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I get stressed often. Like, look at this. I had to make an amend on the podcast. And, and like, the stress of fucking up was right there. And who did I talk to it about? I talked to it with my online therapist. And BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And dopey listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash DopeyPodcast. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash DopeyPodcast. Life is easier when you unload those stressors. So check out BetterHelp. Definitely mention Dopey and get the 10%. And without further ado, further ado, further ado, here is Jeremy Jackson. We're joined by a serious legend, a serious dopey legend, and a serious TV star. He was Hobie Buchanan on Baywatch, and like he's got a fucking crazy story. His name is Jeremy Jackson. Welcome to the show. Thanks, bro. I appreciate uh, you having me on. I love your little studio, dude. It looks super chill in there, man. Well, you should see the other side of the camera. It's like boxes and garbage, and it's fucking it's a train wreck. <laughs> but this is like everybody. This, Life's all about perception anyway, dude. Uh, the, on the other side, it matters. It's just what people see, right? <laughs> exactly. And you're, you're sober coaching, you're fucking training, you're chefing, you're activities director at a rehab now. You're doing all that shit now, huh? Yeah. yeah well, I was uh, doing the uh, rehab stuff for a long time, leading breathwork meditations and fitness stuff and nutrition groups and all that stuff. Uh, I'm not working with any facilities right now. Did the private chef thing for a, for a long time for a buddy of mine in recovery. You know how it is, man. When you're in recovery, you just you're, you're doing the deal. You can't lose. I mean, there's always a different job, always a place to go, always room to grow. Uh, people looking to help you out. So it's been pretty easy. And you are a classic child star, and uh, you got into the business like before you got into using, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, however. And I've, I've known I was an addict from a freaking way before, way before I discovered drugs and alcohol. I was mixing chemicals together before I ever partied. Cigarettes and nail polish remover, you know, huffing pine saw and rubbing alcohol and bleach mixed together. I, I was pretty freaking experimental, dude. When were you smoking cigarettes with nail polish remover? 
well, you know, about 10, you know, maybe nine. But I was, I was mixing chemicals together. You know, my first drug, you want to hear my first drug? Yeah. I would stick bobby pins, tweezers, you know, butter knives, forks, anything I could get. I would, I would shove in electric socket, sockets just to get a little rush. Um, one day I stuck a, I stuck a bobby pin in the dryer outlet and I blew my little ass across the room. I was still in diapers that I had to climb up on the dryer. And, uh, I was like, I wonder what this one does. I think cause I had blown out all the sockets in the house already. Right. And, uh, I literally shot myself like six feet across the room. Do you remember the feeling of getting shocked? You know, more so what I remember, this is actually really fucking interesting. If you want to like like dig into this more. So I, w- what I remember is the excitement of doing what I wasn't supposed to do behind someone's back and wondering if I changed the mechanism or the device in which I was sticking in the outlet, if I, if it would work still, or if I would get hurt or if it would leave less of a big black mark on the wall, or if it would actually shock me that it was more of the curiosity. If I could do the bad thing in a different way, and not suffer the, the, the ramifications of my action. The consequences. Consequences yeah. <laughs> are always never our friends. Yeah. So, like, yep. this is a stupid question. Because if you're sticking bobby pins in an outlet in your diapers, do you remember the last time you did it? Like, Wait, how did dry- you ever do My bottom. My, my outlet bottom. <laughs> <laughs> your electricity bottom? Yeah. It was definitely the dryer outlet. After, you know, my, my hair was standing on end and I got shot across the room, uh... That's when I decided to put the plug in the jug, so to speak, with electricity. <laughs> yes. And I think I moved on to fire. I think I moved on to fire. Yep. That was my, my next drug was fire. And t- I mean, like, I'm interested in this for some reason. When I was a kid, <laughs> like, I didn't do drugs as a, as, a, as a young person. Like, I didn't really do drugs until I was a late teen. And I didn't become an addict, really serious addict, until my early 20s. But... I would play with fire too. Like I, I grew up in Manhattan. I would, I would set things on fire and throw them out the window. We would like uh-huh. microwave shit with, with gold on it so that there'd be lightning storms in the yep. microwave, yep. which is normal kid shit. I what was so. your fire thing? Um, you know, uh, it was like just in the house, paper towel balls and, you know, just little experiments and, and projects of what would or wouldn't. I do remember, however, you know, when you would go to a restaurant back when I was a kid, you could get a free pack of matches, you know? So uh, I saved up just hundreds of books of matches and, and I cut all the tips off the matches and I like uh, hot glue stick little box together and I made like a matchstick bomb. Probably shouldn't have done that stuff in the house. You know, yeah. I, it would have been better outside. One time I, I, I put a pin in, in, the, in the stove fire and the, the, it got so hot that it floated ink all over the wall. You know, that was like hard stuff to explain to mom why there was ink all over her kitchen. Yeah, well, you, you, you showed who you were early and you were like a sweet kid, too. And was, was it your mom's dream or were you like, I want to do this? You know, I was obsessed. Well, my next drug after that was... Uh, approval you know um and uh i I didn't have a dad i had a single mom and my mom was uh kind of led a very sheltered very strict christian life you know so 
Um, she wasn't in the entertainment industry. She didn't push me to be an actor. She wasn't one of those stage moms that had experience. We didn't live in LA. We lived in Orange County. However, um, you know, I discovered singing, dancing, just being a jokester, doing dress up. And, uh, you know, people put a smile on people's face. I'd get a round of applause, cute kid, whatever, good job, kid. And I love that. So I became obsessed with how I could get more of that on a grander scale, just like we do with just about anything in our life, um, to fill that God-shaped hole. And uh, it worked for a long time. And uh, because I am such an extremist and obsessive compulsive, I would work on my craft for hours and hours and hours, lock myself in the bedroom. I had a karaoke machine that had a, a play and a stop and a record, and I could do my own little radio shows, do imitations and practice dance moves. And then anytime I had an audience, you know, it was all, all uh, attention on me and, uh, you know, selfishness and self-centeredness. That is the core of my issue. And if everything is going my way and I'm getting what I want and everybody's pleased, boy, life sure seems to be enjoyable. Until, until it goes <laughs> yeah. away and then you need it yeah, again, yeah. you yep. know? And, and when was Baywatch? You did a few commercials and stuff before yeah. that? Yeah. So I started acting when I was six. I did about 30 big commercials, national commercials. I did about 60 little gigs by the age of six and 10. And uh, 10 years old is when I got Baywatch. And actually, I was nine when I got Baywatch. We didn't start filming until I was 10. But, uh, you know, back then I had no clue it was going to be the number one TV show in the world. It was going to be some big hit sensation. It was just really cool for me because I grew up idolizing Night Rider, you know, and uh, it was on the beat. So it was very close to home with who I was personally. It wasn't much of a stretch. I love Knight Rider so much. Like, I can't even tell you how much I love that show. Just even just oh, that too. intro, the intro and, and, and the A-Team and Knight Rider and the Dukes of Hazzard, yeah. like mm -hmm. that shit fucked us up. Like it was oh, so yeah. exciting. You know? Yeah. What was the other? Had a, it was more air. It was like uh, I think Michael Dudikoff was in it or something. There was another show around that time. Airwolf. Airwolf. That was another one. Airwolf and Night Rider. Those my go. What was the one? There was one around then. It wasn't Airwolf. It was like a team, and the helicopter had a face painted on the side of the face on the side of the helicopter. It was a classic yeah, the, '80s action show. No, it wasn't the greatest American hero. Doesn't matter. Forgive me. But, <laughs> but, but, you, and, I mean, like, I have to ask you just as a television fan, what was David Hasselhoff like working with? Uh, it, was, it was cool. I mean, before I got Baywatch, I went to Universal Studio, like, as a fan, stand in the line, you know, trippy looking back because I was inside of Kit. I think I must have been seven or eight years old. You know, it was like my dream come true. And I was talking to Kit, you know, back then they used to have a live guy that would talk to you. And fucking David Hasselhoff, what happened to be at Universal Studios and he ran by and my mom was like, Jeremy, Jeremy, look, it's him. And I was in Kit seeing Knight Rider at the same time. And it was just, my mind was freaking blown. I mean, I had a, I had a Kit big wheel, big wheel. You know, the little two-handle deal? Yeah. And uh, super fan, man. I watched in my car seat, you know? It was like my favorite thing to do. So working with him was a really big deal. I idolized him. Uh, the funny, 
this this kind of sums up David. You know, uh, when I got Baywatch, it was between me and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay, so they had auditioned right. like a thousand kids, and I remember they called me in. They called Leonardo DiCaprio in three or four times already, but they called him in and he came out really quick. And then they called me in, and I came out really quick. And what that was was what David did is he picked up Leonardo DiCaprio to see how heavy he was, and then he picked me up to see how heavy I was because uh, it was very important for him <laughs> to look and feel strong picking up his kid. And uh, he wanted the lightest kid so he could look like a, be a superhero and be, you know, Michael Knight. And uh, that was kind of one of the deciding factors because I was lighter than Leonardo and easier to pick up. Well, there you go. That's that's awesome. And you said around the <laughs> same time, is. right? Well, I mean, the rest is history. And you said at the at the same time you had smoked cigarettes with nail polish around the same age. Yeah, what I was, I I knew that nail polish had this like aroma. Nail polish remover back, you know, acetone, whatever other crap they put in it, but mostly the acetone, which I worked very closely with in my later years. Yes, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, it was something that my mom told me was was wrong to stay away from and was dangerous. Pretty much anything I was told was dangerous or to not touch. Uh, I figured had to have some type of internal solution to my to my problem, which was you know uh, restless, irritable, and discontent from a from an early age. So I, I experimented with chemicals and the mixing of them and the you know inhaling them pledge you know, Glade, all that kind of stuff. But um, I knew that sniffing the acetone didn't do anything to me, although it smelled dangerous, um, really have an effect. So I wondered if potentially smoking it had some effect. So, of course, yes, I lit a, I dipped a cigarette in nail polish, you know, because the cigarette didn't do that much either, right? It was like, okay, I feel a little bit of a buzz, uh, kind of nauseous. Maybe there's more. Maybe that I can... Maybe I could take this to another level. Um, tried one, wet, and you know, almost burnt my face off. And then uh, tried one, dipped it in there, let it dry, and then smoked it. Of course, it just tastes gross. Uh, you know, just the perfumes were left behind. It didn't do anything. But thus, my quest to find the ultimate combination of smoking chemicals that would uh, that would elevate me to a, a level in which it seemed everybody else seemed to enjoy comfortably. It's so funny because it's, it's like if there was someone there that saw it that could have like prevented a lifetime, you know what I mean? Because that's like the, the architecture of your fucking addiction right there. Right. I, I've been right. watching this uh, Pam and Tommy show. It's not the greatest television show I've ever seen. And it feels pretty unscrupulous. You know, like the <laughs> idea that they stole the fucking porno in the first place and then they yeah. made this movie without their... Uh, consent it oh. seems pretty fucking horrible uh -huh. right um yeah. but you see the baywatch set in it often uh -huh. so it made me think of you it's like in what i saw it seemed squeaky in this you know facsimile that had nothing to do with real life um it seemed like yeah. a squeaky clean place and you're this kind of pre-addict kid was it a squeaky clean place or was there like a possibility to use or anything was very much a family, but families are fucking dysfunctional, right? So, sure. Uh, and in my personal opinion, it started off pretty good. And if you watch Baywatch in the early seasons and then keep watching it, 
through the later seasons, you see that it loses a little more and a little more and a little more storyline, a little more relatability, a little more authenticity, and it really gets more and more and more boobs and ass as the seasons go on. So, you know, in the beginning, there were like producers who were really all about family dynamic. You know, they had kids and, uh, you know, they knew people wanted to see that. And Baywatch was like a procedural show. It's like lifeguards doing their job, getting by, having relationships, you know, having drama. And uh, it was a little richer and a little more real. And then, you know, once the ratings go up with, with boobs, it just begins this endless quest to get the new hot playmate that will make your, you know, series go through the roof. And then, of course, with that, you know, hey, you got four, five producers, directors who are at Playboy parties and are, are at mixers and casting events. And to the victor go the spoil, the hottest chick. I'm sure those hottest chicks are willing to do whatever it takes to get on that number one show. So the, right. the, the, the vision got blurry. The, the waters got muddy and I'm sure people started, uh, you know, uh, it, it, sure there was, you know, Pam was getting beaten her trailer by Tommy, you know, David Charvet was pissed off because Pam had just hooked up with him and now here's Tommy and, you know, Kelly Slater was great memories. Kelly Slater coming on in the early years, he was 18. I really looked up to him. That was fun. But of course the producers are married. Are they, aren't they having affairs with the new hot chick? The wife's pissed off because th- this and that. There was plenty of stuff going on uh, behind the camera. Right. Totally sounds very intense. When did you get exposed to drugs in it? You know, adults, they go off, they do their thing. You're a kid, you can feel it. You know what's happening. You know they're doing something fun. You know they're taking the edge off somehow. Either they're screwing each other or they're smoking a blunt, you know, and they're hiding it from me. No one's inviting me. No one's including me. And that drove me crazy. I didn't want to be excluded from anything. I wanted to do what the grown-ups were doing. I, I wanted to do what the bad boys were doing. I had to do a job. I had to show up and uh, mind my P's and Q's. But, you know, after the summer, when I had, you know, 60 grand in the bank from a few weeks of work, that was when it was time to burn it all down, you know? How did it come up? Like, what was the first time you got high? Booze and weed were pretty much hand-in-hand. Uh, I forget how I got booze or if it was a friend or if I stole it from my mom, but I can remember, you know, we, we chugged some rum or something in the night going down to the beach and, you know, you have friends that talk about weed or smoking weed. God, 10, 10 years old, you know, is when really when it started happening, especially cause I was the cool kid that was on TV and people wanted to be around me. I could, I could hang out with older kids. You'd smell a funky smell coming out of their apartment window and hear them talking you you don't know but you want to know you fake it till you make it you don't you don't act like you don't know what it is or what's going on but started smoking little roaches around 10 11 12 drinking booze when you can stuff like that i'm sure like being the successful child actor is a lot like being a professional and you're like what the fuck i can handle this i can handle that um you're such a like an archetypical speed guy like when did <laughs> when did you encounter speed for the first time? Whenever I find something, you know, I make my mind up that this is it, this top, the upper echelon, the end all be all from, you know, twelve probably. It was like, you know, keggers and wheat, you know, bongs, gravity bongs, bubblers, the coolest glass pieces, 
smoke till you die, fucking skateboards, snowboards, surf. You know, that was the lifestyle. Sleeping in the back of your friend's camper because you can't go home because you're too stoned in his truck, whatever. You know, that was the life. And then I think one time I took an ecstasy pill and uh, I, I feel like the person explained it as like something natural or I didn't really get the whole message of what it was. And then later on, somebody told, dude, you know what's in that, right? There's like Coke in there. There's speed in there. There's MDMA in there. And I was like, I didn't die. Oh, dude. I, I mean, I thought these, everybody tells you hard drugs are going to kill you. And I was fine. So that like really opened the door for me. So 16 to 18 was Coke. I mean, I couldn't stay awake. My nose was too bloody to get any more in. You know, I started smoking Coke because I couldn't pack it up my beak anymore. And um, I was never going to stop doing Coke. But then one day I was out of town and uh, ran out of Coke. And friend at the time was with me. And she's like, I'm like pissed, right? Because I'm in this party full of people and, and no one's got Coke. And I'm like, this is freaking crazy. You got to be kidding. There's like 30 people in this hotel suite and we're like at a convention it was the, the hip-hop convention or something in san diego i'm like I, I remember wanting to like eat people up because i felt like they were like uh clowning right they're like there's no way like you gotta be kidding how are you even, there had to be coke how are you even out here with no coke what is anybody even doing here if there's no coke right <laughs> here do some candy do, do some candy yep candy candy what the fuck is candy it's like you know crystal i'm like what What's crystal? Like, why are you making it sound all girly? Uh, and then I'm like, let me see it. Let me see it. She had these fucking Altoid box all fingernail painted. Like, I had to ask multiple people. They're like, it's speed, like speed. I'm like, like speed, like like crank, like trailer park people do. Like, dude, I'm a I'm an established gentleman, dude. Like, coke is the the drug of the. I'm apple. a thespian who smokes coke. I'm an aficionado of coke, right? I, don't people smoke this? Do people smoke this stuff? You know, can, isn't that a safer way to sample these goods? Maybe a lot light inhalation of this. Is yes. there a light bulb? I, I, I must have broken nine light bulbs apart. And I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to get coached by people who aren't really tweakers. Anyway, I figured it out and uh, it was fun. We had great sex. She, she had this candy necklace on, you know, it was one of those kind of. And uh, we ended up sleeping at the hotel room. And there was other people there. So we had the blankets over us and we ended up having hot, sweaty tweak sex for my first time in my life. And this candy necklace had her sweat was dripping it down her body. It was like, oh my God, experience tastes like candy. And she browbeat me about it because I would be in the bathroom the whole time. And she was a social butterfly. And I was just stuck in the bathroom. That was my domain. You know, you want to come in the bathroom, you got to pee, whatever, deal with it. I'm here. You want to do some of my coke, that's fine. And I had this like uh, thing of the bathroom castle kind of thing that was uh, not really fun for any of my friends. So she just kept trying to push it on me. You got to switch. You got to switch. So I did it a couple more times. It doesn't take two or three times to, you know, okay, this is my new thing, you know. And uh, that was at probably 18, 19. And I'd say it was another two year stretch for me of doing that every day. Well, I mean, I have to tell you, like, that story, it's a quintessential first speed story to have her call it candy, 
be wearing a candy necklace, have the candy <laughs> melting down her body while you have sex with her. It's like that. Like, yeah. If that doesn't get you addicted to speed, like I don't know what could. You know what I'm saying? She ended up painting our. You know, I was. It's tweak is like that, right? It's very very chapter esque. Like you have, you know, the the it's it's not a good story, but there's these beginning chapters, and she ended up. Uh, hand painting my entire body and her body and the walls, you know, then it, you, you end up tin Those foiling. Are the good, that's the good chapter. That's the good chap- chapter. Tin foiling your whole house and Christmas lights everywhere. Weird shit, you know? It's weird also because in New York, like not many people are doing crystal. Not, like gay guys do crystal in New York. Like it's a big gay sex mm-hmm. drug in New York. I moved to LA. Uh, coming out of uh, rehab in Florida, trying to stay off heroin. And my best friend had just started smoking crystal. And I was like, I just didn't want to do heroin. But at the same time, I knew that if I smoked meth, I would wind up on heroin, which I probably wanted all along. So like I, my whole meth experience was like a couple, three months. It went from snorting to smoking, to shooting, to, to speedballing with heroin. And then I was like, let me just do heroin. But like, yeah. so it was very fast for me. And yeah. I had a couple of encounters with like LA meth dealers, like a kid named Diggy. Like he seemed yeah. like the quintessential meth dealer <laughs> in, in, in North Hollywood or something. Right. But when you're, when you're in your shout Coke officiant, yeah, he's shout out well to Diggy, wherever he, wherever he is. Let's hope he's still alive. He had a good heart, Diggy, even though, you know, usually he had do. a good we heart. Usually do. Exactly. So when you're Mr. Coke aficionado in your teens, Baywatch is still happening, right? Did people know? Woo! And a couple months before, you know, you're, you got to go back to set. I would go to rehab for 30, you know, get the scabs off my face, put a couple LBs on, you know, get a, a spray tan and a haircut and, uh, and pretend I was this uh, gnarly fiend of a creature um, that, that, people would be so overly scared about if they knew the truth. And by, by 18, you know, it was bad. I mean, the Coke was bad enough to show up for work and be okay or kick on my mom's couch. Um, but tweak, probably it was like the first year I did the tweak fucked me up because, uh, you know, you think you can get away with it. It's Thursday night or it's Friday. I'll just go to sleep on Sunday and show up to work on Monday. And then you can't sleep, you know, and then you take a Xanax and uh, you, now you're just going to work on a Xanax and uh, fuck, you got to smoke some more in the trailer. And Get I didn't up. bring it. So that was even worse. I might have been OK, but I'm on the set all day, 12 hours a day, and I'm coming down hard and uh, I can't even get my lines out. dude. I can't even remember my life. Yes. And, and did did like. Did what's his face? David Hasselhoff and, and, and Pamela Anderson and, and David Charvet, did they know? Did these like did the producers know? Did anyone know? Were they worried? Were they scared? Like whatever. You know, we're we're pretty good at hiding stuff, you know. For a little bit. Um, for a little bit until we're not. So, you know, when I there was this moment, you know, there was that there was that day, dude, when I I, I get sleep, I had to uh, been up all weekend party and I had to go to work. I showed up thinking I could get through, you know, don't bring the meth with you. And, you know, I'm, I'm 
doing this scene, dude. And I'm like supposed to be growing up now, 18. My character's like a lifeguard now. All my dreams had come true. Like from when I was a kid, wouldn't that be cool? One day I'll be a lifeguard too. And like, you know, I'll make this transition from child actor to adult actor. And, you know, uh, double life thing going on. I had that interior darkness that I could transmit to scene and, mm. and, um, and be real. Like I, I was developing a depth of, of pain and, and, and life and relationships. And I remember the day I was on the set and I couldn't even get my mouth to work right. I couldn't even pronunciate right. And I was just, I was mortified, dude. It was, it was, it was really hard. And David Hasselhoff, he, he, he pulled me aside and he, he said, come here. You know, because it was take after take after take after take. I was trying to hit this scene and I couldn't do it. And that's a far cry from how I used to be. You know, egomaniac with inferiority complex. You know, Mr. Please everybody, Mr. Hit my market, say my line perfectly every time. One take, Jeremy, that's what they called. That was the guy who get it done in one take, which they love. It saves them hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know. And uh, who, I, who I had prided myself on, uh, on being was far gone. You know, and I, I could, I could get get it together. And uh, Hasselhoff took me in his trailer, and he was he looked me in the eyes, and he was like, "Man, are you okay? He's like, are you smoking weed or something, man?" Right. And I just rem I remember that feeling of being like, "Oh no, dude!" Like, if he thinks I'm just smoking weed, like, you know, you got to relate like current eighteen year old problem to who I really am, like. I'm smoking, I'm smoking meth with hell's angels and Israeli soldiers who are freaking kicking down doors and robbing, you know, I'm, I'm driving around all day in stolen cars in the San Fernando Valley, you know, doing weird shit with really weird people. And matter of fact, I love them. They're, they're my family. They're my people. There's no way I can tell you what I'm really doing and have you understand at all. Like I can definitely not get on right now. Um, cause you're calling, calling the freaking psychiatric evaluation team, dude, you know? So I just quit it, it, right, right then and there. Uh, I just quit. What I did said, you say? You guys, fuck you. I'm out of here. Enjoyed fucking doing this episode without me, motherfuckers. You know, because everyone was like, come on, Jeremy, dude, what's going on, bro? Are you okay? Are you on something? You know, I couldn't handle that. Like I was nowhere near ready to handle that. So of course, blame it on them, dude. It's your fault. You're all assholes anyway. I had a million resentment built up against everybody dude, anyway. You know, dude, I wasn't making enough money. I didn't get enough episodes. You're talking about like the big, like when I ask you, did people know? People didn't fucking know. You're fucking smoking right. meth with Hell's Angels and these people. You're totally divergent. You had this dream of being this entertainer. You got a taste for the drug. And then the weirdness of the meth you know, blew up your brain and you're like, I'm yep. like a creature of the night doing, doing the thing. And like, it's like, and you knew the day shit, especially Baywatch because it was square, right? It was, it was yeah. not like a great artistic depth like that you're talking right. about. So it right. probably turned you off in itself. And you were like, this That's isn't true. what I'm about anyway. And that divergence yep. was so fucking hardcore. They could never have known. And then when you're like, fuck you, it's like, it's already happening. So your life is already going, but that probably was like a great tether to the ground, right? Baywatch. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it kept me from going overboard. You know, it's funny. Some buddies that, you know, they're social party, you know, or you know, even heavy partiers. They're definitely not hope die drug addicts like we are, you know. And, and, and I remember, like, after I quit and after I was going all hardcore, you know, some of my buddies would be like, dude, you were fine when you were just doing coke, man. Like, just go back to coke. You'll be yeah. fine. I'm like, dude, you don't understand. Can't you, can't you no just smoke weed? Back. Can't you smoke weed, do a little coke? Yeah, that's great. Oh, I mean, by the time I was addicted to heroin, I wish that I could. I loved weed. Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't fucking care about coke. I loved weed. And then I loved pills. And then I fucking loved heroin. And it, it was just, I still loved weed. Like, when I became a heroin addict, I still loved weed. But, like, it was over. And, and like, yeah. in your situation, though, it's like, the the thing that meth does to your brain when you're using it, it's fucking like like it's hardcore out there fucking shit. And having to go to work probably kept something on the ground. So how much of a change was it once you didn't have to go? Oh well, yeah, it was great. I don't have to go. Uh, I'm through everybody. I went into hiding. You know, ended up living in Studio City. And doing exactly what I want to do with the worst of the worst that I thought were the best of the best, you know, smoking meth off a, a candle because uh, I'm in a pad that has no electricity. We're, we're fucking squatting, you know, not tasty. At what point do you start cooking? Well, I'd gotten in trouble through the years. So there was a couple, you know, lawyer hit. I had gone to a lot of rehab. Those were big hits. So the money was dwindling and I was getting, because I was seen as a Hollywood star, I was getting ripped off a lot. Old super glued chip, you know, uh, sold bags of cut. Bastards. You know, people didn't even want to smoke me out for free. Yeah, bastards. They didn't want to get me high because they thought I had money. You know, they're, they're addicts. Their minds are twisted too. They think I got everything and they got nothing. So through this, dude, I'm not relying on anybody anymore to get me high. I got to learn to cook this shit on my own. So that happened uh, about 19. Wow. 19 years old. I, I spent about a year really uh, obsessed with that. Obsessed with that cooking, having, you know, sulfuric acid blow up in my face, having red phosphorus spilled on me and, you know, cooking meth over an open flame, having pads braided because the guys I was with that were teaching me how to do it were like wanted, gnarly, involved with Hell's Angels and DEA, but like actual agents who were in on the shit that was going on because they were shipping this shit to Hawaii for $9,000 an ounce or crazy, you know, uh, having sex with underage girls. Like, you know, there was, they, they were the real the deal. Dirt. It wasn't like uh, glitz and glam, you know, I'd had so enough glitz and glam, dude. I wanted to how, how do you fucking get someone to teach you how to cook? Like, there's no internship program. There's no, like, there's, like, how do you, how do you get someone to teach you? Well, you know, we kind of already prefaced that I'm obsessive compulsive, dude. If I want something, I'll, I'll put my mind to it. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to be, I'm going to hunt. I'm going to experiment. I'm going to try. And so, guy, this, uh, the Taiwanese guy got a nice car nice apartment and a hot chick and he was like had the best meth you've ever done and he wasn't a dealer but he always had some for it you know we would all smoke meth and, and ice it was ice you know and he would sit like this and he had his everything was pretty and he had his little cooling pad and the best porches this guy this is my guy 
He's the guy. And uh, he's the guy. Turns out I, I got him close, got his trust. He didn't, you know, trust a lot of people, but he specialized in crystallized meth. He could make it grow. He could turn it colors. He could make all the stones exactly identical, like, you know, break it apart. And it, they're all diamonds. Like he was the wizard, you know, the, the shard wizard, as it were. He was working with this Hell's Angel guy and he would fix bad dope and he would clean and do all this kind of scientific stuff. And turns out, uh, you know, I was real, you know, real specific about wanting to give my life over. Like I'm all in. Where do I have to sign for the chemicals? You know, throw my, dude, I don't care. I'll be on the, I'll be on the most wanted list. I'll be on the watch list. Put my name down, buy it on me. What do I got to do? I'll get another identity, you know? And it turns out that the Hell's Angel guy, name was uh, Frank. Frank. And Frank was working for a guy named Gary. And Gary was in the Fed. He, w- he was a federal agent. Also a Hell's Angel. And Frank was dying of lung cancer. And he was just this gnarly dude. He walked all rigid. Hands were all swollen and puffy. You know, he slammed heroin and meth. And he stank, man. He stank like death. Like you could smell that he was dying all the time. And, uh, and I told him, man, uh, you know, apprentice, I'll be an apprentice. Like I'll do all the hard work. You know, you can take the product and my fingerprints will be on everything. You know, I'll be the patsy. I was willing, I was willing to throw, uh, it all away just to learn how to do this stuff. And so that's how, that's how they used me, man. They used me to, to cook the meth to a certain point so that I couldn't steal it. It would lock it in liquid form. It's called lie locking. And uh, I do all the, the grunt work, dude. I do the stuff that was dangerous that could, you could blow yourself up with. And they'd come finish it and break me off with something. Now, I mean, the story starts, you're, you're an attention-seeking little kid who gets on the biggest show of all time, who gets movie deals, who, you know, is around the most, some of the most beautiful people in the world. You, you were considered one of the most beautiful people in the world. And it's like next year you're willing to throw it all away to cook meth, like as everything, right? I mean, that's pretty profound in itself. Like, what did you have anything in the back of your head? Like I wanted to do this. Like, do you remember the thought process of that time at all? You know, it's, it's funny, man, as I'm talking to you about this, and I'm kind of, I'm, I'm actually drawing some correlation. Like, man, when I was that attention-seeking kid, like all I really craved was power, you know? All I really craved was power. I, did, I was powerless, man. And mm. I needed new power to flow in. You know, I needed that, att- I needed to belong so bad that, you know, I found that attention that making me felt like I belonged. And that attention, you know, turned into these, this TV show thing that it was just based on my effort, man, just based on my attention attention to detail of my hard work. I got discovered because of that, who I was, because I was on TV. I was on TV because of who I was, you know, I just got locked and loaded on. If, if I could cook that, then I would be the king, you know, this guy's going to die. And then I'll be the guy. I'll be the guy, all the hoes, all the dealers, you know, all the, I won't have to worry about where I live. I won't have to worry about anything because I'll be the guy with power, the magic fingers that can poof, get everybody hot. You know, with the best. It is very magical. 
the, the cook. It's a fucking magical job because you're creating this magical substance that changes <laughs> somebody when they consume it. It's pretty fucking. And they need it and they need it bad, especially if you're willing to make it better than anybody else and sell it for cheaper than anybody else. I was going to I was going to take over. That was going to be my life. Well, the alchemy of drugs, too especially to create the drugs. It's like next level power. You know, it's really crazy. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I got really into that witchcraft almost. You know what I mean? And, and you were always like, as far as I know, you were always super fit. Like most drug addicts don't get to stay super fit. How did, like, was that a thing? Was that important to you the whole time? Like in the back of your head? Like, how'd you manage it? Oh, no, never, never. So the interesting thing is I got sober at 20. I stayed sober, clean, totally. Hold on, before we get to wait, hold up, hold up. Does not get you sober yet. Why did you get? I mean, you're 19, fucking cooking meth with the magic fingers. What was the thing that made you want to get sober before we get uh, to sober? I got arrested. You know, I got arrested for manufacturing meth. Um, it was the second time. Yeah, second time I had been arrested. Uh, you know, in the process of of cooking meth or you know possessing the item to cook math or, or in or in between a lab. I got arrested when I was uh, 20 years old. So, you know, that was a weird deal, man. I had, I had kind of reached the end of my rope, dude. I, I remember, you know, cause back then, you know, back when I was a kid, it's just like, you think if I just had a whole ounce, I can remember thinking, man, if I just had a whole ounce, I wouldn't have a problem in the world. You know what I mean? What would that feel like to have a whole ounce? Whoa. Whoa. Uh, you know, here I am. Now I'm 20 and I have pounds. And this stuff just doesn't even get me high. Anymore, you know? And I can remember I was looking out the window of these blinds. And I remember, man, just not funny. Here I am with all this dope and I'm not happy. And, uh, and when I walked out of that house, I was looking out of the blind. And, you know... You always think something weird, but I was right back there. I was like, something weird. I've seen that white van like three times. Weird. And uh, I walked out of this house. Dude's jumping over fences, cocks, freaking shotgun. Guys coming around the corners, getting out of cars, undercovers. Now, you know, it was. Who'd you live with then? I was staying with some way older chick with a kid who lived with her mom that was always beating on the door, trying to kick me out. One of those situations. And you're cooking there. Not there, no, we, but we had the supplies for this. Actually, the cook was taking too long. This is a sad story. I remember this kind of sad. Um, I had sold somebody, rested, and, and dimed me out. And then that guy that got arrested showed back up to buy with his buddy. And so they did a controlled buy on me. And, uh, and uh, the cook was not going as planned. So guy came to deliver to us he was a really nice guy dude super cool guy and he had like nine pounds of meth like under his uh bed liner of his truck so he came to drop us off just enough to get by so we could do the book that guy got arrested i think it was like his third strike and like he went to prison forever and they thought i was cooking selling to him so they wanted and they wanted it was it was a big mess but um I feel bad that my shit, you know, rolled downhill on that dude because he was a pretty nice guy. But uh, it was the Newport Beach Police Department, and I was in Yorba Linda, which is like 30 minutes away. 
I just remember these cops, man. They sat me down on the curb and they said, you know, congratulations. You're going to prison for seven to 35 years. Look at yourself, kid. Look at yourself. What are you doing to yourself? What's wrong with you? You know, because they knew who I was and what I, where I could have been, you know? And that was like, that was really the first moment that I, I admitted, I'm, I'm, I thought about it. what is wrong? Like, I could be driving a Ferrari right now. Like, I just said no to like a huge movie deal because I think they're all going to keep coming and never going to stop. And, and now I'm going to prison for like seven to 35 years. What is wrong with me? I said, I don't know. I said, I guess I'm just an addict. And, and that, the thought went through my mind that I was going to prison for seven to 35 years. Now, you know, I wanted to be the man and I thought I was. And now I'm, now it's over and too late to redirect, too late to make a change. And why? And I was like, wow. The, the, my best excuse I could come up with and my best reasoning was just for one more hit. One more hit. That fucked me up pretty fast. It was identity, though. It was more than just the hit. Like you, you had, you were so like vested in all aspects of the identity, and, and that's who you were. Yeah. And um, and then you got busted. And maybe I wanted to run away from that that name, you know, that 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 hit on. Maybe I just wanted to overshadow that, overpower that so much, you know. Because I would just been scorned by it. I know that I wasn't a famous kid on TV, but I wanted to burn up my innocence with drugs in a way. Like I, mm. I, I wanted mm -hmm. to like shed like whatever. I mean, like now I look back, it's like privilege, innocence, fucking just not, you know, it's not being, being uncomfortable in my skin basically. And, and yeah. wanting to seek some comfort, you know? Um, yeah. So you get busted and you don't have to do seven to 35 years, thank yeah. God. Yeah, I got a uh, hundred grand and I got a, I, I guess I had some account that was supposed to be 150 grand by the time I was 21 and I was only 20. But if I pulled it out early, that was, like, was a like a Baywatch account? A little, yeah, a little trust. Nice. Something that me and my family had honestly forgotten about because it, it, I think we started it when I was young and it was going to mature when I was 21. But we got penalized. We took it out. It was only 90. And so the, a lawyer settled for 90 grand. You know, one more year, it would have been 150. You know, it's like, whatever. Add that to the list of shit I've burnt down. Um, but 90 grand straight up and six months of rehab. And it was my first offense like that. I had to have a lot of misdemeanors. Um, but that was my first thing. So, you know, they got me off on, hey, this guy's just lost attic, you know? Um, and that was kind of the, the beginning of my sobriety journey. How interested in sobriety were you at first? Not at all. Right. Not, not at all. You know, I remember going to like meetings or whatever. And I like, uh, you know, I said anonymity wrong. They had me do the reading and like people were laughing and like, I think they're laughing at, and I'm like, screw these dudes. Dudes were like coming up to me and giving me their phone number and like offering me rides and asking me what I was doing tomorrow. And I was like, what is this? Like, this is definitely some kind of pedophile. Like, this is super creepy. Why is this guy in Dockers and a Stafford shirt, you know, drinking coffee, <laughs> uh, trying to hang out with me? Like, this is really weird. I'm, 
never come back. But also being famous, it's like these people just want to hang out with me because I'm famous. They're interested in me because they know me on TV. You couldn't have felt, did you feel like you were one of anybody when you got there? Or was it just like, was was the fame? I, I always want to know about like fame and 12-step meetings when, when you're supposed to be totally anonymous, you know what I mean? And you're new. Right. Well, there's two sides to that. So number one, far cry. I'm 30 pounds skinnier than when I was on TV. You know, I'm covered in scabs, dude. I got I got pick marks all over my face. You know, I don't feel like a celebrity. I don't feel sexy and famous. I feel like, uh, you know, like a booger, dude. You know what I mean? Like, don't look at me. And then on the other, on the other side, I never felt like I fully uh, deserved or owned who I was. So, you know, I was surprised people wanted to take my picture or recognize, like, I don't have enough fame. Uh, this guy's bigger than me. These are more famous than me. These people probably don't even watch the, sh you know, it was, I made excuses for everybody of why, um, they have no clue who I am because I have no clue who I am. It's like <laughs> imposter syndrome, basically totally. like all, all over the place. Oh yeah. And, and so like when you, when you're 20 and you're fucking in meetings, like, do you, uh, when does the program hit you? Does it hit you at that point at all? Like, do you get interested when you're at that point? So I did six months in rehab. Um, when I was in rehab, uh, they, they want you to get a job, right? I put in for a job at a smoke shop, told them that, uh, I can blow their meth pipe. going to do that clean and sober. So I'm pretty far out there still. I might, I might be sober, you know, but uh, I'm still batshit crazy. So your sober job was going to be as a glass blower blowing the <laughs> meth pipe. Yes. Okay. I'm still pretty committed. I'm still <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and they're like, dude, we buy these from China. We don't have, you know, blowing meth pipes. For so I still wanted to be stuck on a tour. You know, I, my head was pretty far up my ass. You know, I, I like the fellowship aspect of stuff. However, I was, I was still obsessed really obsessed with stealth and, and after i yeah dude dude for at least six months like anytime i saw uh like a vase like i could see a stem in it like it was a meth bomb you know right. if i saw a cigarette cellophane it looked like a, a overblown glass like there like i was it was bad and the meth back then was really fucking strong and i'm 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 smoking shit that's totally uncut, you know but after rehab like nine months of Nine months later, I haven't used, I haven't drank. It's been nine fucking months. I've either been in jail or under someone's thumb, you know, doing the druggy buggy thing and groups and, and shit. I don't know if any of it sank in. I spent a year in bed. I literally, I got home. I'm like, okay, I did what I needed to do. I laid in bed. I was depressed for a year. I pissed in bottles. I, I ate popsicles all night long and watched TV and ate ice cream and uh, slept all day. You know, I called... I called party line, you know, I was too scared to leave the house. So I just stayed in bed until my, my hair and, and, and my skin hurt too bad. And I have to shower to try to, you know, get rid of the, uh, the pain. I was pretty damn lost. And my mom forced me to get out of the house. She took me to this meeting and these guys, these guys that were my age, that's really, that's really when the turning point was for me. They were my age. They drank, you know, energy drink. I don't even think I'd ever drink in an energy drink or coffee, you know, they smoke cigarettes, they play pool, 
They surfed. When the sun came up, they stayed up all night. They spray painted T-shirts. You know, they just did fun. They had shit. fun. And they they went to conventions. And, and those guys got my number. And they would show up outside my house and honk the horn and wouldn't leave until I went. I, I left with them. And thank God for those guys, man. So, you know, I started actually seeing life without drugs and alcohol for the first time for real. And we went to Vegas sober. We go to nightclubs sober. You know, we do all kinds of fun stuff. We were a little scared, you know, but thought like drink was going to lodge itself down my throat or something. But that's really how I was introduced to like actually navigating the world with sober buddy. And you were having fun. Like it was like, oh, okay, this can be fun. And you were still young. And like life wasn't over and you weren't some crazy pirate meth cook. You're fucking living, you know, and you're yep. living probably a life that was pretty similar to like the Hollywood dream in a way. Cause you're still going out. You're still, you know, meeting, yep. you know, meeting people and, and, and having a good time and being young and good looking and shit. Is that when Beautiful fitness Southern hits you? California, you know, right. I've been sober for six years now and I'm dating a pretty hot chick. I saw her ex-boyfriend Facebook profile and this dude was Jack. He was shredded. And, uh, somehow I just made a decision that I wasn't going to let any ex-boyfriend be sexier than me. And it's time for me to start training, you know, mixed martial arts, start getting my, you know, skinny arm, big belly ass in the gym, you know? And you were into it. Super into it. You know, as, as we do with, with anything we sink our teeth into yeah, I'm in the gym every day. I'm I'm doing Muay Thai, um, taking all the right supplements, and uh, I'm getting after it. And 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 when does like the shit creep back? Like, what was the shit that started creeping back? In my head, I think it was it. Did you start doing like like uh, steroids first, or was it drinking first? You know, it, it's funny. I, I actually I just hit her up to, to say hi the other day. I had to talk to her in years. Have you heard of this lady, Shelly Sprague? Yeah, of course. So Shelly was one of my counselors. You know, she worked with Dr. Drew. She's a fucking legend, right? 27 years sober, something like that. Yeah. You know, she was a counselor of mine. She would say, you know, Jeremy, you're sober with a small, you know, you're not sober with a capital. And I had no idea with that, you know? So yes, I'm clean and sober. Yes. I'm, you know, I love, I love being clean and sober, but you know, if I'm not taking a new girl home, night I go out, I must be a fail. You know, yes, I'm, I'm totally sober, but you know, I, I got these outfits that are just got to attract attention. I still got to be a star. I still got to be cool, prove that I still got it. You know, my, my sobriety or my dedication to my sobriety was like only fulfilled, you know, if I could prove I could still get the chick, if my part, because I started doing nightclub promotion. You know, if I got the chick at the end of the night, I must be on the right track. You know, if I'm stacking cash under my mattress, I'm still a gangster. You know, uh, it's all God shaped whole shit anyway. Right. It's just another one. Bullshit, man. And, you know, I just I just it was very surface level stuff, still self-seeking, self-centered. And I thought I knew. I guess I just thought I knew stuff. I thought I knew what was uh, necessary, what I needed or what was good enough for me. So, yeah, fitness crazy weird diets i'm still manic basically you know um and uh steroids came in for sure what else was i getting weird with 
you know, I was getting weird with money. You know, I joined a car club. I had a Lambo for a little bit. I had a uh, Porsche for a little bit, Ferrari for a little bit, and and uh, all God-shaped whole stuff, man. And and that's all from the nightclub promotion, right? You're you're just making crazy. Where's the money coming from? And I started working with uh, fashion brands like Ed Hardy, Christian Odegier. So I'm all rhinestone, stone studded out, going to cool events and. You know, I wanted. To, I also wanted to kind of prove that I didn't need the entertainment industry. And I thought if I got all buff and I was driving a Lambo, like some producer was going to come out of the woodwork and be like, "Dude, we right. need you." You know, you don't need us. We need you. Look at what you've done with yourself. Um, just self-defeating prophecy shit. You know. I think that shit sounds that for twelve years. That that sounds hard to me to ever do that kind of work and, and be sober. Like, like how does that even possibly go together? A few things there, you know, it was funny because I'd be at a nightclub dancing my ass off, sweating my ass off. Cause I'm working with models. I'm making money and I'm the center of attention. I, I got, I got plenty of dopamine, you know, I don't need, I don't need drugs. So that's one side I was using in the, using people, places, and things to fill my God-shaped home. You know, the other side of it is if I smoke some tweak, I'm not dancing. I'm not having a good time. Uh, I'm definitely not making money. And I'm not going to be on the mic being Mr. Personality hyping the party up. So um, I nightclub, I have, I have far long graduated from nightclub party. You know, I have a couple drinks and I want to punch somebody in the face. I do some coke. And I, and I, you know, I, I'm a, a fucking asshole. You know, I like to be alone in a garage with a dirty tool set and, and a fucking porno. Right. You know what I mean? Like that, that's how I like to play. And when, when did the slip happen? Are you still doing meetings in that time? Are you still like trying to work a spiritual program when you're in? Totally, dude. I got, I got sponsees. I'm letting guys crash on my couch, get clean on my couch. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to meetings, but I'm going to meetings to show these guys that it can work and you can be cool and have fun and you don't have to be lame to be sober. You know, I start, uh, taking on this mantle basically, of a young guy with, you know, double digit sobriety. Like I'm only 30. I got 10 years sober and you can do it too, rather than being a worker amongst workers you know, a, a small piece of the organism, grateful and right. and all that kind of stuff. So really, so the steroids, some steroids are way different than others. Some steroids absolutely make you manic and, and, and super obsessive compulsive and go into a downward spiral of, of self-centeredness. The fitness industry in general is pretty selfish, self-centered, you know, it's pretty, pretty egotistical and self-serving. Um, so, you know, that's a slippery slope. Steroids, Super slippery slope. Yeah, that's why I've never gotten fit in my whole life because I don't want I don't want to be like that. You know? <laughs> anyway, keep going. But what had happened was in my quest to become the next Rambo, so the entertainment industry would come groveling back on their feet to, and beg me to be in their new movie because I wasn't going to ask anybody for anything. They needed to ask me with jujitsu, with extreme weightlifting, triathlon. I mean, I'm a nut. I exerted my, my nervous system to the level I was getting very little sleep, but medically the sleep I was getting was not deep enough to actually repair me. So I'm getting this big bloated belt. My, my organs are growing 
and I'm, I'm getting issues from not producing my own growth hormone because I'm in this constant state of fight or flight. Addiction, so uh, right. basically I just recreated, you know, stimulant, you know, through my own endogenous hormones, I'm creating chaos internally because that's all I really know how to do. Even if I'm able to successfully somewhat pull it off for 12 years, I'm a producer of chaos, right? And um, so I produced this chaos inside me and my doctor's like, I can prescribe you what, what GHB is gabapentin, right? Which is a drug that I love, that I've done for years, that I've also manufactured. He's like, but honestly, it's probably way cheaper for you to get it on the street. That's what the doctor said? So I mean, yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, it's like a, it was like $1,000 a bottle, right? And it's like this little bottle and it's prescribed to people with extreme sleep apnea or, or sleep disorders because it just puts you down. So I start EHB just to go to bed. I'm not trying to feel it. I'm not trying to party on it. I'm not taking it in the daytime. I'm just like taking it and I'm closing my eyes like, okay, I don't want to, I want to fall asleep before I feel it. Getting loaded, dude, and I don't even know. You know, story of my life. I'm, I'm screwing myself over and I can't even sleep. You know, well, a doctor saying, I can't write you a script for GHB. You should hit the streets, get some GHB cheap. It's like, and he, did he know you were in recovery? Did he know? Yeah. 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 That's fucking, that's I've had horrible. That, yes. Yeah. I've had doctors that know I'm in recovery prescribe me uh, Adderall. Doctors that know I'm in recovery prescribe me benzos, you know, oh, just you know, me too. Some other, benzos. me too. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, then I'm in a black. I've had that kid, happen too. You know? But I've never had a doctor say, well, I could write you Get a script for Xanax, but I know this dude on 6th Street that has it for a dollar a pill. Like, I never knew a doctor that did that. So it's like, Damn, that's Damn, a dollar a pill? Up. That's a good deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's back up. in the day. You know what I'm saying. It's like, yes. that's fucked up. And, and, and it's a setup. And are you going to meetings drinking the GHB at night? Like, is it part of, is it, do you somehow work it in? Or is that when you're like, I can't do the meetings anymore? Basically at that point I had already moved to LA and I had years. So kind of felt like a big shot. I felt like maybe I would go to meetings, you know, on occasion, uh, but I didn't really need them. Like I had needed them in the past. Right. And, uh, and how does your life change at that point? What happens? Oh man. That for a while. I got away with Adderall for a while and then I, you know, weed, then it was weed, weed for a while. And then, then after I, you know, I was personal trainer to celebrity. I was uh, like nutrition, fitness coach, mentor to hedge fund managers. You know, I had plenty of money rolling in. I thought, you know, I had it all figured out and I, I, I thought to myself, well, dude, I'm, I'm like, 33, you know, 32, whatever. I've been sober 12 years, even though I'm smoking weed because I didn't consider it to be a relapse at that time. Like I could probably get away with drink, you know, or I'll do an experiment if I can get away with drink. So I drank on occasion and, and, and I was fine with that too. But like when I meet, when I say fine, I mean like I didn't have one drink and wake up a week later in a crack house. You know, but I was also in a relationship with a woman that uh, had totally become my God. That was my drug of choice. She was, she was the main drug in my life and we would drink and smoke a little weed and, uh, and things seemed to be going fine. 
Was that was that the woman you married? Yes. Lonnie? Lonnie yeah. Willison? Yeah. She was crazy hot. You were both crazy fit. And and yep. it's like, as somebody, because like you had a life, I, I just, I'm interested in the bigger story. Like you had this, I love the, this. this child star fantasy life. You had this crazy, very brief kingpin, meth cook, fucking full on, all of the, the misadventures, smoking meth and GHB. I never did GHB, but that's a whole other thing. Oh. Um, I know. I missed out. I know. What um, about Quaalude? Yes, I did Quaalude somehow. Or, yeah, me too. I don't even know how. Me neither. I don't even know how I did Quaaludes. <laughs> I never smoked PCP or, or did GHB. Those are the two things I never did. PCP one time. I almost jumped out of a moving car. I thought I could run alongside of it. We were on the freeway. Oh, my God. But hold on. I was dead sure Hold on, hold on. So you're fucking, yeah. you're, you're, you're in your early 30s. You've got this ridiculously hot wife. You're in ridiculously good shape. You've got money in the bank. You did 10 years of sobriety. You're fucking 32. You had worked this program. You're with this hot chick. You're smoking weed. Do you have that feeling, uh-oh, like, uh-oh, like you had heard so much AA shit, NA shit, whatever. Were you like, uh-oh, at that point or no? Yeah, I got I got a little weird, you know, like a little weird on the weed. Weed and Adderall's a weird mix, super overly analytical, you know. Start start slacking, you know, like uh, showing up late to meetings, can't get out of the house, squeezing your own eyebrows, or getting fucking weird, doing stupid shit, you know. And I remember little things like, oh, this is weird. I have a little drug box, you know, with my vape pens and my dab rig. Mm. This is paraphernalia yeah this is kind of this is kind of old 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 shit man but like you said i got two cars i got a dog i got a housekeeper you know it's like man i mean if it gets bad bad like i'll just stop you know that's what i thought if it gets bad bad i'll just stop it'll be fine so what happens well what happened what happened was uh you know Turns out, like all this codependent fixing superhero stuff with the wife, um, was uh, was not just girly insecurity and uh, you know generalized paranoia or uh, you know a wounded female who could be loved back to help with money and trips to Maui and trips to Fiji and, you know, getaways and, you know, extra back massages and topped out of this, uh, this fearful role, you know, uh, me and my great ideas, you know, I, I married a, a, a former porn star who was a stripper for years who, who had fucked guys for money, who had been, abused by her family who you know dated a, a a meth addict for years who jerked off to porn and her self-esteem was so low that she got into porn so that he would love her you know i mean this is a deeply wounded female that that you know i thought hey i'm a deeply wounded guy too like we can we can overcome this together you know we're going to church you know we're smoking a little weed sure we're we're taking a little bit of medication but it's as prescribed we're having some wine in bed this is really how you connect and probably the drink 
probably a lot of the stuff was to try to connect with her better, to, to, you know, have a glass of wine together in bed. Yeah, you got a little anxiety. Let's try some weed. She hated the weed. It wasn't good for her. It made it worse. Was she in program when you met her? She was, uh, had never been in the program. When I met her, she was a a normie. You know, I mean, I I saw she drank sometimes, not all the time. There wasn't really like a drug or alcohol problem there that I saw. I had known her since I was 21. So I was dead sober, Mr. Club Promoter. She would come to my club sometime. We'd hook up sometime. We dated. We were friends. We hung out. And then we had lost touch for four years. So essentially, I had known her off and on for four years and then now dated her for like a year. She was in a nursing program. She was trying to get out of stripping. You know, I thought I would have been sober all this time. And I thought, you know, this is, we can do this together. You know, we could we could be a team. And yeah, having drinks together to try to connect, settle down. And I'm under this facade that I'm this mentor healed human who is impervious to, you know, the pitfalls of life because I've learned so much, come so far. And I just Which thought you I had, could yeah, you know, you had learned so much and come so far. It's just like one of these kinds of things, right? It's in and out, you know, yeah. you've been through it. Yeah. I heard you tell the story of, um, the kind of relapse story, the speed relapse story. Uh, could you, could you lay that thing out? Cause it's so <laughs> fucking crazy. Okay. So, you know, after about six months of the relationship really being on the rocks, we get into this fight over, uh, over a girl I dated before her. And, uh, you know, I lose my temper. I throw a beer bottle, the tea and I'm yelling at her, uh, cause I'm just so upset. She won't drop this non issue. And, you know, she starts screaming, stop it, you're hurting me. Meanwhile, she's recording the whole thing and I don't even know it. And you know, I try to get out of the house. I'm like, fuck this, she's going crazy. I try to get out of the house and she won't let me and she attacks me, she face butts me, she rips 30 grand cash out of my hands. I got, I got no shoes, I got no wallet. I have my keys and jean shorts, dude. And uh, I was lucky to get out of the house with that. I, I went to get out of the house and I went to my car. And before I got in my car, I thought, man, Jeremy, you got to go back in that house and grab your cash, dude. Whatever she's flipping out about, she's doing something. Something's wrong, dude. I, that was a thought I had in my own head. And uh, this other voice came in through my entire body. It rattled. It, it vibrated without argument. No questions asked, non-negotiable. Said, Jeremy, if you go back in that house, you're never coming back out. And I was like, what? Okay. So I got in my car and I started it and I backed up and I pulled the nose of my truck around the car parked in front of me. And just as my tail bed cleared the car on the side of me and I was driving straight, this cop whipped around the corner, pulled into my house, turned on it, light. I basically had about... One second of straightforward momentum to look like I was through traffic. If I would have been pulling in or backing out or doing any maneuvering, that cop would have for sure looked in my car and asked me to stay right there, you know, because I was directly in, across from my house. And I was driving on the road and I was like kind of crying, like, well, what just happened? I got scratch marks on me. I got no shirt. I got no wallet. 
I'm like, where am I going to go? I can't even gas if I need gas. I have my phone. I'm like, I'm just going to drive to my mom's house. And I was on the 10 freeway south driving from LA to Orange County. The voice rang through my head again. And when I say rang through my head, I'm talking about like you got hit with a bomb. Jeremy, if you even stay on this freeway any longer, you won't make it to your mom's house. And I was like, what in the actual hell? Pulled off the freaking freeway and uh, I parked my car in an underground parking garage where I knew somebody lived there, some random chick that I had personal trained some months before. I rang up the bell desk, called up. I didn't even know she was going to be home and she was home. And I went in there and I said, I, I just went through a gnarly experience. Like, I'm so sorry. Like 10 o'clock at night. I, I don't know. I don't know where I was going. I don't even have my phone. I can't call you. Can I stay here? You know, my like basically just got attacked by my wife. And um, she said, yeah. So she had Xanax and she had booze. And I was pretty traumatized. So I started popping Xanax and drinking booze, crying, weeping. That girl raped me uh, while I was uh, totally, totally high on Xanax and drunk. She forced herself on. I was crying under the pillow while she was right. It was like, I spent weeks there, weeks drunk and Xanax out, weeks, maybe two months, not making any phone calls, just hiding, miserable. My mom said, Jeremy, don't come home. There's cops all over our street looking for you. My mom went to my house in LA. Jeremy, there's cops all over your street in LA. You're wanted for attempted murder. Lonnie said this, Lonnie said that. And I'm like, oh my God, like, how is this happening? What, like. I thought it was all my fault. Oh my God, I fucked this up so bad. What I didn't love her enough. What did, what did I did not do? So blackout was really the best I could deal with. Dude. And I cried every day. There was moments when all that was touching the floor, I'd go in this girl's closet, lock myself in there, put a pillow over. And all that was touching the ground was like the back of my heels and my shoulder. Like I'd be arched up. Like, <laughs> like I was, so wrecked. And finally, I just, I asked this girl, I said, you know anybody that has meth that can get meth? And she had a girlfriend that could get meth. And this girlfriend came over to the house with a box of watches. She had all these stolen watches, these Technomarine watches, and she had meth, and she was cute. And I was like, this has got to be my new best friend. I didn't want anybody to watch me smoke it. I didn't want to pass it. I wanted to be alone and I want to do the thing that I hadn't done in a really long time by myself. So I went in the bathroom. I closed the door. I sat down on the toilet. And while I was melting the bowl, sitting on the toilet, looking down at the pipe, I saw the top of my foot. I had no shoes on. And on the top of my foot <laughs> is that right there. Nine, nine twenty four, two thousand. That's my original sobriety. Yeah. September 24th, 2000. 2000. So I know it's it's September. And I go from the bathroom, I go, hey, what what day is it today? You know, and I'm looking down to romanticize this meth I'm about to smoke for the first time. And they go like, it's Tuesday. I'm like, no, 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 no. What's the date? The 24th. So it was 9-24-2014. I was doing meth for the first time in 14 years on my original sobriety day. 
And that just freaking rocked me, dude. I couldn't believe it. So 14 years to the day, I'm doing meth again for the first time in 14 years. Exactly. That's crazy. I, I have a stupid question though, Jeremy, you gotta, you gotta indulge a really stupid question when, and this is just, forgive me for this question. Okay. <laughs> um, when you get to this woman's house, right. And you're fucking traumatized, miserable, out of your mind. And she gives you Xanax and, and booze. How does it work? And this is a stupid mechanical question. How do you stay hard and get ridden if you're, if you're traumatized and crying, like explain that to me, the reversed rape. I need to know, please. I need it. I need the information. That's a, that's a really good question. And I don't actually know the first thing that popped <laughs> The first thing, well, she forced herself on me orally first. I was shit fake, you know, and I was, I was like, no, 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 pushing her off, pushing her off, pushing her off. No, don't. She's like very insistent, you know? And uh, I just remember sobbing in that pillow, dude. It was really fucked up. However, you know, deep down inside of me, there's this part that is so used to being taken advantage of is so used to being used, mm. is so used to being basically molested and, you know, raped in general. I mean, I've lost all my money so many times. I've lost my career now twice. You know, it's, it's almost like the most uncomfortable stuff is somehow become the norm and comfort. Right. You know? Right. Okay. Yeah. That may, you're in a situation that you don't want to be in and you kind of have to do this thing that comes naturally and there's pleasure in the pain, all that shit. This is what she wants. I'm wanted by the cops. I'm staying at her house. She takes care of me. I'm sleeping in her bed. You know, I've probably had sex with a lot of girls. I didn't really want to have sex with. I've already had a million girlfriends who were using me just to make their boyfriends jealous. I've had a, a, a you know, a million girls who wanted to date or have sex with me just to say they dated me or had sex with me because uh, you know, I'm on TV or I'm bragging rights. Like it's, even though it's spiritually crippling, it's really not that far from, I mean, I just got out of a relationship. Yeah. That that's was really interesting. Yeah. I, I just had a girl betray me. You know, I just got out of a marriage that was a total fucking farce, you know, obviously at this point, anything I think I know is wrong. And what I think I know is right is wrong. And what I think is wrong is right. I'm fucking Real life. And what do you think? Why don't just add insult to injury while we're at right. it? Right. But what do you think happened with Lonnie? Do you think something like happened in her head? Like, how did that get so fucking dark? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you for for about two years. Um, yeah, I did a lot of like grief and trauma work on this. Um, and while I was doing that work, I was still pretty convinced that that somehow I had failed that it was my fault, that, um, that I could have tried harder. Um, you know, meanwhile, I, I'm her personal trainer. I'm her private chef. You know, I'm seeing her off with breakfast and lunch every day. She's going to work. I put her through school to get her cosmetology license. You know, I'm paying off the, the, the debts that she has that are overwhelming her and, and, and making her feel less than, and, you know, I'm, we're doing all this stuff. We're getting her acne scars removed. Like, in my eyes, she's just this queen. She's just this beautiful queen that deserves to fly. She's this swan that, that, you know, thinks she's the ugly duckling. And I didn't, I was so obsessed with, with fixing her little issues 
that I couldn't allow myself to see how much more severe they, you know, right. Like as, as much as I want to help, it's a big lesson for me. Like as much as I want to help people, as much as I want to be there for people, as much as I want to channel God's solution and I want everybody to be happy, joyous, and free, you know, even, even today, you know, this is a good, uh, a big lesson. There's things I can't do, you know, and because I was so obsessed with being able to be everything she needed, um, I couldn't see when she would call me from the doctor's office and say that, that all the girls were talking about her in the other room and she could hear them and that they were conspiring against her or making fun of her. You know, she would do this on, on occasion, you know, like, like I wouldn't say frequently, but at least twice a month and, um, or things like that. So at that time I was making excuses for like, okay, you've been stripping your whole life. All you know is ratchet women who are out to get you, caddy, bring you down, you know? So that's what you expect. So, you know, I understand that, you know, it's past trauma, but you're grown up now. You got a big girl job now. And, you know, who, who cares even if they are, they're not, they're probably not probably is hearing something, you know, but even if they are, who cares? You're beautiful. You're a unicorn. Of course, they're going to talk bad about you, you know, because they'll never be as good as you. You know, I'm trying to apply, you know, human aid to this deep spiritual wound. She would show up at three o'clock when I know she doesn't get off the at home. She'd be crying. I just can't be at work anymore. I don't know. I, the, the doctor was in the room and there was a patient in there and I, I saw the scalpel and I just felt like I was going to hurt somebody. I just felt like I was going to hurt somebody. Like I was going to mess up and cut them. And I'm like, Oh, you poor thing. You know, you don't think you're worthy of this like good opportunity and these professional people. You feel so clumsy and so less than that. You think you're going to make this mistake. And it's, what's the worst thing you could do. And that's all you expect of yourself. But babe, but babe, you're better than that. You know? And I would just, I would try to talk her out of these holes. And I just thought they were insecurity. So I didn't think she was hearing voices in a pad. I thought maybe she just misheard something through the wall. Could it be that she was actually just hearing voices? Could it be that she was having like paranoid delusions of grabbing this knife, stabbing a client? Like that didn't even ever enter my mind because, you know, selfishly had that entered my mind at the time, it would have changed the whole dynamic of our, our relationship. Unfortunately, Sadly, if I would have been more open, if I would have been more, you know, mindful, maybe, maybe we could have taken different measures. You know, I was in therapy. Listen, she needed to be in therapy. I, she should have been in therapy. I was in therapy. It's also a, we are not saints situation. You know what I mean? You can't. And also you're, you're, you're drinking and you're smoking pot. And then also that story post fight, you're hearing voices, you're hearing voices all over the place. Very So true. it's not Very that. True disconnected and it's like it's also that whole thing like two sickies can't make a welly you know what i mean like it just it's so hard to it's like it's very hard when you have two broken people to get hold together usually what happens to you guys is what happens now now you look down i'm just i wanted to get that backstory because like that bathroom story when you see the tattoo 14 years to the day that's some fucking cosmic fucking crazy shit it's crazy. You yeah. can tell the story 50 million times. It doesn't make it any less crazy. Like, that's fucking deep. Don't you? It's I mean, weird. it's deep. 
Yeah, it is. And and then so how long does the does the does the meth go after that? How long do you stay at this chick's house? And when did you get clothes? You show up at her house <laughs> just in jean shorts. When did you get your clothes? Yeah, I did. I got after Lonnie moved out of the house, and my mom went back and got stuff. You know, um, and mostly just bought new shit. You know, I had a little bit of money in the bank, not the cash that she stole, but a little bit of money in the bank. So when that girl showed up with the watches and the meth, that's pretty, I, I pretty much left with her that day. You know, I left with that girl that day and that run went on for about a year. Yeah. About a year, couple assault with the deadly weapons, robbed at gunpoint a couple times, kidnapped, freaking, <sighs> I mean, stealing cars. Hold up. This is too much. You got Hold on. Who did you assault with the deadly weapon and what was the deadly weapon and what happened? The, the deadly weapon was a knife. So it's a really long story. I, uh, <laughs> I needed a ride and I asked the crackheads on the side of the street for a ride and they had to ask their boss for a ride. And the crackheads gave me a ride and the crackheads attacked me in the car during the ride trying to steal my money and my dope. And I fought back and I beat them up. And then the boss of the crackheads called me after that. And I, he's like, Hey, I heard your shit. I heard your shit. You stand it up for what was yours, man. Okay, I fucked with you, man. Here's what I need. I need to order this much drugs. So I agree to meet him. And when the dude comes to pick up his dope, he's got this crazy seven foot tall, ugly, like creature person with him. Woman. <laughs> it was a woman. A, woman. a large woman. I didn't woman. want to say ugly creature yes. woman. And, yeah. and uh, she pulls out this telescopic baton. And he's like, you know what's up? This is the homegirl, such and such from Da 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 Gang. And, you know, this you're getting taxed, you know, for selling dope, like basically in our area. And we're going to take this. And, you know, uh, I get into this gnarly scuffle. I get up and I fucking grab the dude, wrestling down to the floor. And I've been doing jujitsu for years, so I know how to handle my own. I've been doing Muay Thai for years. And I'm choking the dude out. And then the girls beat my shin with the baton. And, I, I can't hold on to him with that rear naked choke because my legs are off him now. She beat my shin. That shit hurt. Ugh. He's on top of me and we're fighting. We get this crazy scuffle and, you know, he leaves and then he's got all my shit. I just lost like $2,500 shit. So somebody in the house is like, hey, I can introduce you to this guy. He's got a lot. He'll, he'll front you and you can get back on. I meet this guy and his name's Wacky. And he's got cloud tattoos all over his face and he's from this cpa gang canoga park alabama and he's all overweight half black half mexican all tattooed up he's shining up a gun however i heard you can handle this problem for me he's like yeah man you know they just didn't you hear who i am man you're gonna get your shit back they know i'm fucking with you man you're gonna get all your shit back man and i'm like okay cool and so we set these people up on a that stole my shit and and it's a cluster fuck and uh I'm waiting outside. They're supposed to do this deal and, and get my shit back. And they've been in there for 45 minutes. I knock on the door. I'm like, fuck this. I want to handle myself. And the dude answers the door with the gun. Like, yo, man, fucked up, man. We flush all the drugs because you not like, help me. Fuck, I hope you're happy, man. I'm like, what? Like, it's fucking crazy, dude. And then they, they all go scattering out of the room and they take off. And I'm like, where's the shit, you know? And then he fucking puts me at gunpoint. He get in the car. He's like, Yo, man, this ain't Hollywood, man. This ain't freaking, this is for real shit. You ain't about business. You ain't, I'm taking all your shit. This is my dope now. This is my car now. And, and uh, we've run out of gas. Got me a gunpoint. I think we slammed meth in there because he was out of his 
friggin' mind. You know, he keeps just talking shit to me. He keeps putting the gun in my face and telling me what a bitch I am. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. I'm trying to play it safe. But I got this pocket knife on me, you know? So, you know, after we get out of the car and now we're in my Airbnb, this room that I'm renting, he's basically just, he's got my car keys in his pocket and he's taking whatever he wants, man. And I, and I waited for the opportunity and I said, I called him a bitch. And when he turned around and he pointed the gun in my face, I stepped through so the gun would be over my shoulder. I grabbed his arm on top of my shoulder. I locked his arm with my shoulder, my head, and my hand. He can't get his arm away. And I had that knife in my hand behind my behind my uh, hamstring. And I just started going to town, man. And uh, he got out of there. He went right to the hospital. And uh, they he gave a fake name for himself. And he told the cops, oh, yeah, Jeremy Jackson from Baywatch. He stabbed me. He's gangster. Yeah, go get him. And... Uh, before they could uh, run his fingerprints to see who he really was, he left against medical advice. He ditched the hospital. Turns out he's wanted for a shooting uh, at a party. He's a scout. He's been on the run. And, uh, you know, they arrest me. I go to jail. I got all this. I got to bail out. It's a huge nightmare. It costs thousands of dollars. I'm just trying to get, I'm just trying to stay alive. I'm just trying to eat. I'm just trying to feed these hungry fiends out here and, you know, pay for my rental car, pay for my hotel room and stay high. That's all I need, man. Why does everybody taking my shit? You know, so then like a couple weeks later, somebody stole a car that I borrowed. That guy stole my car. So I borrowed a car from this girl that was in jail. She's going to allow me to drive her car while she's in jail. And some people came and stole that car. And I'm like, look, man, I've had enough of my stuff taken. I'm not letting other people's stuff get taken, especially other people who were kind of considerate enough to loan me their shit. I got to get this car back. You know, I got to get this car back, not for me, for the girl who loaned it to me. And I, I hunt these people down and I falsely imprison them. I'm like, you're going to give me my fucking car back. And you know why you're going to wow. give me my car back, right? I, you heard about what happened to the last guy that fucked me, right? I mean, he lost the testicle, 126 stitches. You know, he's lucky I let him live. So, so we don't want another episode, right? You're going to give me my car back. Tell me what. I, we all make mistakes. Hey, we're all feeding people. You just fucked with the wrong person. You know, that's all. Nothing on you. You just don't fuck with me. And, uh, man, it took three days, dude. Three days. No, it took like two days. And they drove me in circles, man. They lied to me. They they bullshitted me. I was buying them food. They were getting dope sick, so I bought them heroin. I was just trying to keep them well so they could get me my car. And they were just lying to me. And then there was two dudes and a girl, man. They they linked up with this other dude and they were, they turned, I was in the back seat and they turned, I saw them turn down the volume in the front and turn all the volume to the back seat and crank up the music so they could talk, inspire against me. And I was like, you know what? This is where I draw the line, man. When the guy got out of the car, I jumped in the car and I told the girl, I pulled the knife out. I said, get the fuck out of this car right now. And she just started kicking, violently kicking. She turned her back. And kicked me with both legs. And I got two dudes outside the car trying to get in, you know? And this girl got all cut up on her legs because I had a knife at my hand and she was kicking. And uh, so I that that's the second assault with a deadly weapon right now. And all this shit just happened like consecutively. Boom. This is this is a normal day in my using career. Not even abnormal. This is just how it goes. It's just the second you add meth back to your life, all of a sudden you're dealing it and it's utter 
fucking demoralizing chaos, the, the craziest fucking shit. And it's also just even listening to you talk when, you know, you're, you're so rational, so sensible, can make sense of everything. And the second your brain recalibrates to that situation, you tell the story like you're in the situation, right? Yeah. It's amazing. And, and it's really part of all of our fucking double life shit. And like, fight or flight, weird instincts. Now, you're fucking in maximum chaos, right? You had 10 years of sobriety. You've had this ridiculous, long, strange trip. There's been many shows on TV that I watched shooting heroin about your career becoming a speed career, you know? <laughs> like, you're, you're, the, you, you're like this figure, a public figure who've gone both ways. In the back of your head, are you thinking, I can get out of this? Or like, are you thinking, I got to keep going? Oh, yeah, always going. Always keep going. I don't, I don't give up. That's one of my, I don't know, mean, I don't mean, I don't mean keep, I mean, like, are you thinking I know how to get sober and I, and this chaos can end or you're like, don't, I'm not, I want to get sober yet. Like, like, I don't like it. Yeah. No, I don't like it. So being sober, taking vitamin, uh, you know, working out, uh, anything beneficial sounds absolutely terrible. I mean, I think for any anybody in, in active addiction, that, that, it all sounds right. like a complete joke. So, so what What turned the page? The same thing that turns the page every time, dude. Handcuffs. Handcuffs and another really scary prison term hanging over my head. You know, that I never have that moment of clarity until I'm arrested. That moment of clarity does not last very you know so it's now it's an ankle monitor and it's seven years in prison i'm looking at and you know i gotta i gotta plead guilty like i'm some knife wielding maniac who just went around stabbing random people you know i don't get to be the guy that was just protecting myself or was trying to get out of a situation without hurting anybody you know none of that gets said or told or is even cared about all that matters somebody got hurt and i had a knife and i'm the bad guy and, and I got to be okay with that, dude. And now I got to go back to jail again. You know, there's no hope for me. Once again, thank God. Thank God. The only time I have a moment of clarity thank is when God. I'm hoping. You know what I mean? For real. Like, a moment of clarity is really is really worth, you know, it's worth its fucking yeah. salt. So, like, where's the moment of clarity? Like, what are you... What are you looking at? Like in terms of time, what are they... What are, They're saying seven years, an ankle bracelet. How did you not do it? Well, um... I did, uh, I ended up doing a year and agreeing to five years felony probation and a lot, a lot of rehab. Uh, the way I didn't do it, I mean, I had, uh, I had a lawyer that was, a, that was recommended to me by Nicole Eggert, who is one of my co-stars from Baywatch, formerly from Charles and Charles. She saved my, because I had a couple public defenders because I really did not have money anymore. Sure. Um, I had a couple public defenders. One of my public defenders said, you got to go insanity. You got to go on Sandy. I could probably get you five years uh, at a me at a mental institute. You know, uh, that's probably the best we can get. Mm. And the other guy basically said, you're screwed. This is it. You know, knife charge, terrorist threat, false imprisonment. The girls got cut and, you know, you were there. And so I'm not lying. I'm not denying. I'm not trying to get out of this thing. I'm just trying to hope that the judge can see this as like, a, a drug deal uh, among crazy people gone wrong. However, the guy that I stabbed before who was robbing me at gunpoint was, was 
really against me. You know, the, the DA loved to keep bringing that up. Like, hey, this isn't the first time. This is going to ha keep happening. However, the girl ended up coming to testify against me really high on hair, like falling asleep. Which never Ricky. looks good in court, right? I think it helped. It had to. It never looks good when I somebody's nodding out in court. That's never a good look. The other guy who was involved had a criminal rap sheet that was up the wazoo. You know, uh, uh, the girl had, uh, uh, she had an escape chart, like escape in custody. The guy had a high-speed pursuit. They all had fraud charges. They all had been, he had done prison term. Their rap sheets were way worse than mine. Way, way worse. I had been out of trouble for a really long time and I had a great attorney who could thank God explain to these people that I, you know, I'm just a sick alcoholic drug addict. And if I could get my shit straight, if they could keep me in line long enough, I could actually be of benefit to mankind and be a positive force, um, for other addicts that are suffering, man. And, uh, I feel like I got exactly what I needed, dude. I, I, I ended up going to rehab and, and working in rehab for like, Four years, you know, I was basically in rehab for like four years. So that was good. And, and that's where I really got to work on myself. And I did go back to jail and do a year and I got a strike. And um, it's all finally now coming to an end. It's actually been about five years now since all that trauma, drama went down. And it's all kind of uh, falling off my record. And just I'm really lucky, dude. I'm really great. When, when, the, when, when you get to that place and the judge is like, you can be, or the lawyer says that you can be a positive influence on mankind. Does that occur to you then? Or are you just like, get me the fuck out of this? Man, I was scared. I was scared to have, I didn't want to be let down. So I was really scared to have any high hope because it looked really bad. The DA hated me. He really wanted me to pay, pay. They wanted to make an example of it, really. I mean, dude, my buddy was like, dude, my buddy's from Connecticut. Like, but I have a seven salt with the devil. I've never done a day in jail. You know, never. I've done a little Caltrans or something like that. He's like, California people are crazy. And I was scared. I knew that. So I had to really find that place of acceptance, dude. And look at, look at my life and, and throw myself at the mercy of the courts and just put one foot in front of the other. Luckily, I got a lot of letters. Like, you know, I got certified in like, CPR and breathwork meditation, drug and alcohol counselor. So when I, when I got uh, sober, I didn't think I was going to be sober. I never had 10 years though. You know what I mean? I never had 10 years. I was never a pillar of 12 step. So I really wasn't. And, and I, you know, I, I kind of really am enjoying the program right, right now. Like for real, um, when you, are in that situation and they're saying this guy could actually be a great beneficial person in the universe. Are you ready to make the psychic change again? Or are you feeling resistant? No, I wouldn't say resistant, man, that, that egomaniac with inferiority complex comes up again and again, man. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't, I never know if I have what it takes, man. I never know if I could do it again or do it better. And, you know, I get ideas, man. I get ideas. Back then I had an idea. I, I, I thought I knew, okay, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll work in rehab. That'll keep me safe and protected. And I'll do this and I'll do that. I really had no clue at that point, you know, and I, I like to still, I like to have no clue every day. 
Today, I like to wake up and I like to do that set aside prayer, man, that, that I need a new experience today, a new experience of myself, a new experience of others, new experience of my brokenness, new experience of my recovery, and a new experience with God. Yesterday's experiences won't feed me. Yesterday's food doesn't feed me. I need, I need to connect on a deeper level every day. And for me, that requires a lot of letting go of anything that I think I know or, or any choices or just desired outcomes that I may have because I feel like those desired outcomes or those, um, those choices on how anything is supposed to look bite me in the ass, dude. And, and it, it's not until I'm in the back of a freaking cop car that I realized that they bit me in the ass. You know, I'm, I, I get so dead set and so cocksured on thinking I know what's right or I know how it's supposed to go. And I find that place of real surrender, man, it has so little to do with my drinking and, 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 and using it. It has everything to do with my thoughts and my feelings. You know, if I can align my thoughts and my feelings with, with a greater good, with the utmost surrender and to what I like to remind myself every day to embrace the mystery, you know, embrace the mystery, man. And, and to be a part of, and to go with this, this flow of the adventure, then I usually don't find myself dead set, cocksure, um, or, or let down feeling, uh, lost or confused because, uh, I never had any personal preference. I stay out of the result and this kind of goes amazing. It's a, it's, you're talking about a spirit, a spiritual answer, like a spiritual program. And it yeah. sounds like you take it incredibly seriously and it's required every day. That's the craziest yeah. part. Yeah, it is so. required every day. Um, I was at a meeting the other day and there, you know, the, 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 the chapter in the book about the family, you know, and that, and that we can, we, uh, the prospector that's mining and how we can hit this unlimited load as long as we keep doing the work and as long as we keep giving all the profits away, but then we can still benefit. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, yeah. and like, it sounds like that's where you're at and it sounds like that's how you're benefiting. Yeah. What's the dream? Like what, like what, what are you, you're letting the mystery be. You're like, fuck it. Uh, today's a good day. Yeah. Yeah. Currently I'm, I'm working on boundaries because for so long, I'm, I've been so scared of becoming an egomaniac without realizing. I've been so scared of having preferences or desired outcomes or a framework on how anybody or anything is supposed to go that I've like let go of everything, you know? So now I'm like, okay, it like it's actually, now I actually have to work on boundaries or standing up for what is right, like, for the group, not by me, but like, you know what I mean? Like Sponsy wants to smoke weed and, and work the step, you know, it's like, I've been so in, in a state of sweet reasonableness. I'm like, Hey, okay. I don't know. I don't know how that's supposed to go. You know what I mean? Cause I'm scared to be like, no, that's not right. This is what's right. How it has to go. So I'm actually, I demolished the, the structure, so to speak down to zero. And, and, and I'm now working on, like healthy desires and, and having some kind of structure uh, based in like the collective consciousness, what is inherently good or for the, for the greater good type stuff. 
Right. Do would, so. I. I would you sponsors? Would you take someone through the steps who's smoking weed at this point? No. The, right. um, the step. The steps are designed to ex, uh, introduce somebody to a spiritual experience, being Absolutely. completely free of mind and mood altering chemicals. Right. And you know. Like- and it just if it, it doesn't take man. It's like wanting to taste grandma's perfect secret recipe pie. Like I remember grandma's pie, it was so good. My mouth watered, it was like, oh my gosh, I want to experience that bliss. I want to relive that like grace and that, oh my gosh, that childhood freedom and like, oh, I can feel the summer day, the beating on my skin and the smell of the water from the hose, grandma's pie. But I want to do her recipe, but I'm just going to leave out the apple. Right. You know, it's like, dude, it's it's not going to work. You know, it just won't. Yeah. Right. For me, it's like, all right, you want to get high. You want, you want to smoke pot and work the steps. It's like, great. Find someone to do it. Cause I can't do it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it, yeah, good I, luck. I hope, I hope it goes well. You know, like I want everybody to be happy, joyous, free. I want everybody to experience fullness in their life. And I'm, I can't with weed. And if other people can, I think exactly. that's rad. I'm actually stoked for them. I'd be stoked if me I too. could too. Um, so I get yeah. it. It's just ha- not how it was given to me, not how my family, sponsorship family does it or believes in it. And I'm not going to re remix. No, the I have a similar thing. I, I was, uh, I just looked up Lonnie and, and this story came out like last week that they found her in the street, yeah. totally, uh, you know, homeless, destitute in trouble. And, um, what a terrible story. And I saw, I saw on your Instagram, like someone mentioned it to you, like Lonnie's out there and it's your fault, like basically. And it's like, so how do you carry that? You know, I blame, I blame myself for a long time. Um, I really thought for a long time that it was my fault because I was, I was ill-informed. I was under uh, uh, the delusion that uh, we were fine. We were doing good. She was just insecure. And it wasn't until I saw some of those early pictures that she was home because her friends were reaching out to me and saying, you got to help her. You got to help her. And I was like, this is like my lawyer said, don't my lawyer said, I've been doing this for 30 years. If you ever talk to that woman again, you're going to end up in prison. I've gone over her history. I've seen her criminal record. I've heard the audio recording she made. I know who she is. I know who you are. And these women will not rest until guys like you are in prison. Because if they can't have you, nobody will have you. And that scared the shit out of me. And it, and it broke my heart because I was losing my everything. So therefore, I had nothing, which was what sent me into a, a downward spiral for sure um, because she had become my God. But I did a lot of work on it, of, of letting go of this relationship that I thought was perfect. But then when I continued to see her on the street, I was like, wait a minute. Like I saw the, I could see the dirt on her arm from like the tape. You know how like you remove that tape, you go to the hospital and you take the tape off. I was like, oh shit, she's been in and out of hospitals. This is real. Yeah. This is not a hoax. This is real. And that when it hit, it, it didn't hit me until about two years after I hadn't seen her. It hit me. Oh my gosh. She was actually fully slipping from mental health those were real psychosis psychiatric issues it wasn't a little bit of insecurity it wasn't a little bit of trauma 
This is like real stuff. And at first I was really relieved. Like, oh my God, it wasn't all my fault. Like I didn't fail her hazards. There's nothing I could have done to keep those pieces together. Maybe, just maybe this would have happened to her years before had I not been around there to clean up all the messes. Oh my gosh, what a freaking, you know, what a weight that was. Like, boom, holy shit. I was so crazy that I was didn't even realize how crazy she was. Holy shit. That I never could have carried her on my back. And of, of course, I tried really hard. I had like a camera crew and a, and a professional intervention team because there's only one way to do that. There's only one way to help her, and that's to get her taken against her will by a psychiatric evaluation team and to get her 5250, which is an eight-day hold, and medicated, sedated, hydrated with antipsychotics. And after full stabilization and medication, taken against her will, kicking and screaming, you know, sorry, you got to leave your shopping cart. Like she's not going to go willingly. People have already tried. Um, I can't go out there and club her over the head, drag her to a cave, stand there while she kicks dope. And I, I don't know what people expect me to do or want me to do, but it's a really involved process that costs probably one to $200,000. I mean, she needs about a year of care, um, from psychiatric care to aftercare to outpatient care. I mean, she needs therapy. She needs medication. She needs a lot of stuff that I can't do without, uh, with, I don't have the money for that. And, you know, I, I didn't even have enough money to throw 200 grand at that probably in my heyday. You know, it comes in, it goes out faster than it comes in kind of thing. But I was really working hard with uh, a media outlet to procure free treatment for her in exchange for um, publication, you know, get this whole thing covered. And I still have some potential opportunities for that. Um, although a lot of them canceled because it was done unsuccessfully already by somebody else. Somebody else already tried to help her and she denied the help. It's sad that people want to blame me like as if because I lost my temper one night with her and uh, threw a beer bottle through the TV and, and yelled at her, what the fuck is wrong with you? Right. Um, that I sent her into this downward spiral. Um, it's amazing how narrow-minded and how people like to blame and, and cast blame. However, I've been so blind in my life. I've been proven so wrong. I've been under so many wrong um, assumptions. I've been so sure of things that I have no room to cast any judgment on people who are thinking one thing, you know, luckily today, which, you know, things like this haven't always been the case. I can take solace and peace that I know today my side of the street is clean. Today, I'm not hurting anybody and that I didn't do uh, the things that I'm being blamed for and that I don't have any access to grind or crosses to bear with that. If, if I can be of help, I will be, I would be. However, it's not an overnight matter or something I can just snap my fingers and make it go away. Would I like everybody to, you know, join together and put together a bunch of money to help her? That's freaking amazing. Do I feel the need to save her like I used to? Absolutely not. Am I happy that she's filthy and, and covered in piss and shit so no one rapes her? Definitely not. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, no matter how dirty she gets. Nobody deserves to live like that. And am I totally okay with people going off on a tangent about me? Absolutely, dude. Like, it would deeply bother me if I had something to hide, if I had some guilt left in me. Right. You know, it would really bother me. But 
I've let go of those, uh, that pride and that ego, you know, that sense of self-esteem or security. Do I need everybody to know what I did and how hard I tried in order for me to be okay? Absolutely not. I can be okay right here, right now, even if everybody doesn't agree because I know, God knows, my sponsor knows. Did I have ambition, high ambitions for that? Yeah, am I still called to be okay here and now, today, even though it didn't go my way? And am I called to look at how, you know, my ambitions were not met and I was not okay for a long time? And how important it is for me to be okay anyway now today. Yes, thank God I have a process for all that stuff. Because without it, I'm just as bad shit crazy as I've ever been. Totally. And there's, I mean, it's powerlessness. You know what I mean? And, and, and you just need to keep doing your thing. It's rough. But uh, your story is like a fucking gold mine, a labyrinth of, of insanity and meth and GHB yeah. and recovery. <laughs> and I really appreciate you yeah. hanging in there with us. And I really appreciate your time, man. It's like, and, and like, fuck it. You're fucking in the public and, and people have nothing better to do than to fuck with you because they think you, you have it coming and it's not fair. So I think you're working a, a very nice program from my vantage point and I, and I support you and I really appreciate what you had to say. Thanks. Brother. Is there anything you'd like to plug before we go? Can I, can I help you out with anything? Yeah. I'd love for people to check me out on Instagram. It's at Jeremy Jackson fitness. I'm super active on there. Any questions, any comments, any love, any support, any cool suggestions on groups. I need to be a part of a follow so we can stay stronger and connected together. I'd appreciate it. Nice. So let's support Jeremy Jackson. Thank you again for coming on, man. And, uh, take it easy. Thanks. All right. So that's the end of another extra long dopey episode. Big things are happening. Big shit is going down. Look for Aaron Carr to come back soon. Look for more special guests, surprise people. Anyway, I hope you guys are doing well. Hope you like the show. Please send in a voicemail. Don't be afraid to send in a video voicemail. Subscribe to Patreon. Subscribe to YouTube. Buy some fucking dopey shit. If you are on Long Island and want to get a super swanky haircut, go to Iron and Tread. Fucking one more apology to the good barbers at Iron and Tread. And and while I'm at it, I'm going to apologize to Steve-O for repeatedly calling him an anti-Semite with no evidence. I'm going to be, I'm done calling people anti-Semites unless I have anti-Semitic evidence. So Steve-O, I know you're listening. I apologize. The rest of you guys stay well, have as much fun as you possibly can and stay strong, dopey nation and fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And I wanna take a ride up in the sky. Watch this aeroplane just pass me by And I wanna see a Lear 
jetliner, take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I wanna be good so bad Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand they pay it any mind when I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds because peace and love are very 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 hard to find and I wanna be good so bad wanna be good so bad so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I wanna call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I wanna call my dad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had